This morning we'll be reading two passages. First, we'll be looking at Psalm chapter 130, verses 7 to 8. And then if you want to bookmark the second, chap- the second passage, will be uh, Mark, uh, excuse me, Mark 10, uh, verse 45. Um, so we'll be looking at Psalm 130 and then Mark chapter 10. Psalm chapter 130, starting at verse 7. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. We turn to to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Good morning. Isn't it good for us to be gathered like this again? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the extravagance of your saving grace. We thank you for the crucified, risen, and soon coming Jesus Christ the one who sits at the Father's right hand right now makes intercession for us with wounds on his hands and his feet and at his side. Lord, help us now as we deepen again into the mystery of your son's wounds and may we be changed through this hour in your word. Transform us by your grace. Help us to deepen into appreciation and gratitude for your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The cross of Jesus Christ is a single wonder with many interconnected sides. And so we found it appropriate to spend this 10-week season meditating and marveling together on the many sides of the single diamond called Calvary. Sacrifice, propitiation, forsakenness, reconciliation, etc. To see, as Donald McLeod has put it, that all these concepts or motifs of the cross are interrelated and interdependent and that together they give a thrilling and coherent picture of what the cross achieved. This morning we're at week five of our series and we're landing on yet another shade of the cross, another motif of the cross, and that's the motif of redemption. Redemption was happening at Calvary, at the cross of Jesus Christ. What do the words redemption and redeem and redeemer and redeemed mean in the theological sense? I want to begin here this morning by trying to walk us through something of a working definition of redemption in the biblical sense of the word. The language of redeeming and redemption, first of all, comes from the ancient world of commerce or business or the marketplace. So we've gone now from temple and tabernacle imagery 
when we talked a few weeks ago on sacrifice, now we've gone from that imagery to the world of commerce or the marketplace with the idea of redeeming and redemption. Now, there are essentially two crucial elements to consider as we think about redeeming and redemption in the biblical sense. The first thing is this, that in a situation of redemption, somebody finds himself or herself in a sort of negative circumstance or predicament. That's the first thing when we talk about redemption. A person finds himself or herself in some sort of negative circumstance or predicament. Secondly, we have a payment or a price or what's called a ransom that is paid by a benefactor, normally a family member, to release the person who found himself or herself in the predicament. A payment or a price or what's called a ransom that is paid by a benefactor, normally a family member, to release the person who was in the predicament. To recap, just because this is, a, this is very important, the two most crucial elements to grasp in our consideration of the biblical concept of redemption are predicament and payment. Predicament and payment. The payment or the ransom, as it's called in biblical terms, is paid by the Redeemer, or the benefactor family member, to redeem or release the person in trouble from his or her predicament or negative circumstance. Now, friends, of course, the the paradigmatic, archetypal, exemplar of redemption and being a Redeemer is God himself in the days of the exodus out of Egypt. God is said to have redeemed the Hebrew people out of their predicament in Egypt. In other words, God acted as the benefactor who paid the price, as it were, to buy his family member, to purchase his firstborn son, Israel, out of the harsh slavery that they'd experienced at the hands of Egypt. Israel is called God's firstborn son in Exodus 4.22. And God, their father, redeems his own, own family member out of their predicament of slavery in Egypt. And of course, we know it was highly dramatic, wasn't it, in the actual moment when God redeemed Israel out of their Egyptian Predicament. We have that part of the story in Exodus 12 through 14 with the Passover and then, of course, the Red Sea. But God announced his plan to redeem his people way before those chapters. Back in Exodus 6, verse 6, here's what he said. He said in Exodus 6, 6, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the... Egyptians, there's their predicament. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, predicament. And I will what? I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Exodus 6.6, 6, 
is God's initial announcement of his plan to redeem or to release his people out of their Egyptian predicament. Well, we talked earlier about a price paid in redemption for the release of the one who is in trouble. So what is the price that God the Redeemer had to pay at the exodus for his people to be released from their predicament? Well, I think that we should consider a couple of things here. First, there was an expenditure, listen, an expenditure of great power on God's part. God paid for the release of his people from Egypt in terms of simply spending might and power in order to get them out. Nehemiah 1.10, which reflects back on the Exodus, says this. It says, it says that God redeemed his people by his great power and by his strong hand. So there was the price, quote unquote, the price that God paid of strength and power. But then secondly, there was the price, of course, of the Passover lambs and their shed blood. If not for the shed blood of the Passover lambs, Exodus 12, that was smeared on the Hebrew doorposts, the Hebrew people would have died there in Egypt instead of being released. So then in sum, there was the price paid in the Exodus redemption in terms of God spending his own power. And there was further a price paid in terms of the sacrificial lambs who acted as substitutes for the firstborn of Israel, the lambs whose blood protected Hebrew homes from the angel of death. The Exodus, as we said, is the archetypal, paradigmatic, biblical example of redeeming and redemption. And it's God himself, we need to note, who does the redeeming. Now, Israel began to celebrate God as their redeemer right after they came out safely on the other side of the Red Sea. In Exodus 15:13, the people sing to God there, I don't know what the tune was, but they sing, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have what? Redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And then from that moment forward in the Old Testament history, Israel begins in an amazing array of texts, too many to quote here this morning, they begin to identify themselves as the redeemed, and they identify Yahweh, they know Yahweh as their redeemer. Redemption is then something that becomes part of the very warp and woof of Israel and their life. Yahweh, listen, listen to this, Yahweh, the one who had done the redeeming at the Exodus, the one who had paid the price necessary to release Israel from her predicament, this Yahweh institutes laws after the Exodus for his people concerning the practice of redeeming and redemption on the human level. The divine redeemer wanted his own 
gracious, redeeming character to be echoed, to be reflected in his human creatures on the human plane. And so we have texts like Leviticus 25.25 and following, and we have Ruth chapter 4, and we have Jeremiah 32 verses 7 and 8 that give God's instruction for the redemption of land. So if on the human level I became impoverished and I had to sell my land, perhaps because of debts that I owed, God said that a near relative of mine, a male relative, could legally come along and pay the price in order to buy the land back. He could redeem the land. So God shows concern in the Old Testament concerning the redemption of land. But God also shows concern, of course he does, concerning the redemption of people. And so we have texts such as Exodus 21.8 and Leviticus 25.47 and following concerning the redemption of slaves. So often in the ancient Near East, if you came into financial trouble, you would sell yourself as a slave. And at that point in your predicament, said God, a close male relative of yours could come and redeem you out of your predicament if he had the means. He could come and pay the price and buy you out of that situation of economic slavery. God the Redeemer showed concern for human redemption practices with regard to slaves. The point again is that Yahweh, the the God who had redeemed Israel at the Exodus, he wanted his gracious redemptive character echoed in the horizontal, in the person-to-person dealings and practices of the redeemed. And so the laws concerning the redemption of land and people, and even animals in some cases... Now, still in the Old Testament, we're working our way to the New Testament. Still in the Old Testament, there came that catastrophic day in the year 587 B.C. when the sin of God's people finally caused their exile out of the land into Babylon. It was sort of like the people now were thrust into a new Egypt, another Egypt. Their predicament was that now they were held captive to a foreign power called Babylon, a predicament that God names in Jeremiah 50, verse 33. Here's what God said. The people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive have held them fast They refuse to let them go. Sounds like another Egypt, doesn't it? The people were in this new Babylonian predicament. They needed a new exodus. They needed a new release from Babylon, a new journey back to their own land. And so the prophet Isaiah especially began to prophesy a new exodus. A new 
redemption from the Babylonian captivity. Let, Let me read to you a couple different texts from Isaiah where a new exodus out of Babylon is prophesied. And in these texts, I want you to listen for the language and the imagery of the first exodus when Israel had come out of Egypt. Isaiah 43, verses 14 through 17. This is the first text spoken to the Babylonian captivity, the captives. It reads, Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, your, what? Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And now in verse 16, listen for the imagery of the first exodus. Thus says Yahweh, Who does what? Makes a way in the sea. What had God done at the Exodus? Makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, Red Sea. Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. God here in Isaiah was promising a new exodus for the captives in Babylon, a new redemption, a new time when those in their hopeless predicament in Babylon would be bought out of their predicament and released and sent back to their land. Well, the other new exodus text that I wanted to read to you, and there are several here, but I'm just giving you two. The other one I wanted to read that also employs first Exodus language is Isaiah 51, verses 10 and 11. Listen here also for references to the first Exodus. The text says this. Was it not you who did what? Dried up the sea, Red Sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed To pass over. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Again, God is telling the exiles through Isaiah that there would be a new exodus, a new mighty redemption. Out of Babylon. It's no coincidence that Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 66 is chock full of references to God as Redeemer and references to God redeeming. Those latter chapters of Isaiah promised a new redemption. Sure enough, Israel was redeemed out of Babylon. They were released from their predicament. And what was the price of this redemption? Well, in contrast to that first redemption out of Egypt at the Exodus that had cost sacrificial lambs, the new redemption out of Babylon did not have any vicarious sacrifice as a price. Rather, the coins 
coins, the coins that God used for this redemption were entire nations. We can read about the cost of the redemption from Babylon in a place like Isaiah 43, first seven verses, where God talks about giving entire nations as the price of the redemption of his people. Indeed, God raised up the nation of Persia to defeat the once mighty Babylon in war so that what happened was a people group outside of Israel, we need to understand, defeated another people group outside of Israel and the result was the redemption of Israel. The victorious Persian king Cyrus ended up delivering the edict that set Israel free. But now watch this. It gets better. As is typical with the biblical writers, when Isaiah began to prophesy the new exodus to the captives in Babylon, it wasn't simply that God would come and perform a mere do-over of the first exodus, or a mere repeat of what God had done in the past when he brought the people out of Egypt. No. In fact, Isaiah's prophecy of the new redemption was a prophecy, listen, of an amped-up redemption. A clear escalation from the first exodus. A much greater much more far-reaching exodus. Isaiah's prophecy wasn't simply about Israel being released from Babylon. It went much further than that. There had been hints here and there in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament days, there had been hints that what Israel really needed to be redeemed from, set free from, by the payment of a price, was her own sins and iniquities. Psalm 130, verse 8, it was read for us today, that that verse had promised that Israel would be redeemed from all iniquities. Isaiah 44, verses 22 and 23, forges the link between God blotting out transgressions and God redeeming his people. We need to understand that the real captivity that God's people had been in since Genesis chapter 3 was a captivity to sin. More than it was a captivity to either Egypt or Babylon. Captivity to sin was what they really needed to be redeemed from. The exile that needed to be overcome was not any exile to a foreign nation, per se, but rather, listen, an eternal exile away from the presence of God that was caused by human sin. Well, intermeshed in those latter chapters of Isaiah, those chapters that talk so much about a new exodus and a new redemption, we find passages about the mysterious servant of the Lord. The one who would come to suffer and die 
Isaiah 53. And he'd come to suffer and die not for his own iniquities and sins, but for the sins of people other than himself. Isaiah 53, 7 said that this servant would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. A new Passover lamb, perhaps? Would this servant somehow be a new price that would be paid for a new redemption? The servant of Isaiah says in Isaiah 61.1, this is the servant talking, he says that one of the purposes of his coming would be to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That is redemption language. This servant would come to release people from their seemingly hopeless predicament. He would be a redeemer, the redeemer. And what happens? What happens? A young man named Jesus of Nazareth stands up in the Nazareth synagogue in Luke 4, and the first thing he preaches, according to the Gospel of Luke, is that servant passage from Isaiah 61. Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he says, he unrolls the scroll and he reads it. And here's the passage he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus sits down and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says, Right now, with my presence, the long-awaited hopes of Isaiah's prophecy are being fulfilled. The capital R, redemption, has now come. I am the one, says Jesus, to proclaim that the day of liberty for the captives is now here. I am the one who will set at liberty those who are oppressed, those who are in a hopeless predicament. Now we've seen today how the two elements of predicament and price are major components whenever we talk about biblical redemption. So let's bring it forward to today. What's the predicament that we all need to be released from that none of us can release ourselves from? Jesus tells us in John 8.34 and Paul tells us in Romans 6.16 human beings, briefly put, are born enslaved to sin. Did you know that you were born enslaved to sin? Human beings live under a tyrant called sin. Sin has, to use the biblical language, sin has dominion over people. All people are under sin, as if we're under this tyrant. The wages of sin is death. And unless a benefactor comes along and pays the price of redemption, the ransom 
to release us from our predicament, we are doomed to an eternal exile away from God. So if that's the predicament, what's the price that is paid for our redemption? Let's go to Mark 10, verse 45. And let's behold together the breathtaking redemption statement that Jesus makes here where we can see the price of the redemption that Jesus came to perform. Mark 10.45 is like the fountainhead for the entire New Testament doctrine of redemption. It's like the sun around which the other New Testament redemption passages orbit. Jesus here lets us in on the nature and the character of his very mission to our world. I want you to notice that. He says, For even the Son of Man, and with Son of Man we should automatically be thinking Daniel 7, the Son of Man who has eternal dominion and glory and a kingdom. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve And to give what? His life. His very self. As a what? As a ransom. As the redemption price. As the means paid by the benefactor for the liberation of those helpless in their predicament. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, and we could viably translate that little word for as instead of. That's what the word in Greek means there. Instead of many. The Son of Man came, he arrived. On the earth, in the flesh, from eternity, he came to accomplish a mission. His mission was the mission of Isaiah's servant. His mission was to pay the redemption price in the stead of sinners so that sinners could be released from the captivity of sin and Satan. And the price we note here, note very carefully, was not silver, was not gold, was not animals, was not nations, or any such thing. The redemption expense that Jesus came to pay to give was his life. He gives up himself instead of the many having to give themselves up as payment for their own sins. Listen. No Old Testament Redeemer was ever expected to sacrifice his own life as the ransom for a family member. But Jesus, on his cross, has given himself 
for us to redeem us, Titus 2.14. Jesus on the cross gave himself as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2.6. Or to get even more specific about the price of the redemption that Jesus has accomplished, Jesus has, listen to this, freed us, freed, freed us. We're free, we're liberated. He's freed us from our sins by his Blood, Revelation 1.5, or Revelation 5.9, by his blood, he has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The lifeblood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross was the hefty price for our redemption. The Apostle Peter states it, and Robert read it or, or quoted it earlier. The Apostle Peter, with great clarity, says to the believer in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, he says, Know that you were ransomed. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? But with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. Ephesians 1.7 says further, in him we have redemption through what? Through his blood. The blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, the blood of the firstborn of creation, the firstborn of creation who was not spared like the firstborn children of Israel were spared at the Exodus, His blood was the price of our redemption. His lifeblood is the price of our exodus out of slavery to sin. Jesus, according to Acts 20.28, he obtained his church, purchased his church out of its former slavery with his own blood. Now listen. The mission of redemption undertaken by Jesus... This redemption of sinners, the price of which was Jesus' self nailed to the cross, this this redemption would be staggering enough if the ones needing the redemption were sitting innocent in their captivity. We're in slavery to sin, yes, but, but not by our own choosing. We're innocent slaves captured unwillingly Needing help. So help us, somebody. And Jesus comes along and frees innocent slaves. But it's not that way. It's not. No, the ones needing to be redeemed, that's you and I, are, listen to me very carefully, willing slaves. We Choose our bondage. And this important point is made in the excellent book by Steve Jeffrey, Michael Ovi, and Andrew Sack entitled Pierced for Our Transgressions. The authors point out that the biblical picture, the picture that's drawn throughout the pages of Scripture, is that all of us, before we are born again, are willing slaves to sin. We choose the path of wickedness 
a wickedness whose bondage is God's just sentence on our rebellion. And the authors point to Ephesians 2.3, if you don't believe them or me. Ephesians 2.3, maybe you'll believe Paul. Paul reminds us there, he minds, reminds his readers that all of us also, listen to the language he uses, all of us also lived gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Gratifying sinful cravings. We gratify them. And Paul also talks there about people following, listen to the language, following the desires and thoughts of the sinful nature. Following sinful desires. We do it willfully. And didn't Jesus say in John 8:44 that unbelievers whose father is the devil, those unbelievers will, he uses that word, they will to do their father's desires. They will it. They want it. So friends, the mission of God, listen carefully, the mission of of God the Son taking on flesh and going to spill his precious blood is undertaken for people who have chosen their bondage. The ransom price of the God-man's life is paid for culpable, willing slaves to sin. I don't know about you, but this fact causes my understanding of the grace of God to simply skyrocket. I become staggered by the mercy that he has shown in my redemption. Some of you may be troubled by a question that may have arisen in your mind by this point. Dunbar, you've talked a while about what the price of the redemption was that Jesus paid. But the question is, who received the payment? God paid the price of our redemption in the blood of Jesus, but who does the payment go to for the release of sinners from their bondage? I want to give you the quick answer. The quick answer is, it wasn't Satan who was paid by God. Satan gets nothing from God in our redemption except the crushing of his head. Rather, with Hebrews 9.14 in mind, I think the best we can say as an answer to that question is that God pays the price of our redemption to God. Again, God pays the price of our redemption to God. Hebrews 9.14 tells us that Jesus offered himself to God. God received the payment that was the very life of Jesus. And if that sounds somewhat paradoxical, that God would pay God the price of our redemption, welcome to the paradoxes of the cross. For example, we said a few weeks back in our sermon on propitiation that God averts God's wrath by the sacrifice of his son. Well, in redemption, if we must find out who the one is who is paid the redemption price, the best we can say is that it was God. God pays God in order that willful, disobedient slaves to sin might be released. Now, I want to say just a couple more things about the redemption undertaken by Jesus on his cross, and then we'll be done. The first thing is that the redemption performed by Jesus, listen, on his cross, is already And it's not yet. Redemption in Jesus is already, and it's not yet. In other words, 
as believers in Jesus, we are redeemed already by his blood. To be certain, we are redeemed, and I hope you know that. But the New Testament, we notice as we read it carefully, talks also about a final redemption that yet awaits us. Where? Well, in Luke 21, Jesus talked about his second coming. As far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. It is yet to come. Jesus talked in Luke 21 about signs in sun and moon and stars. He talked about dismay among nations and perplexity concerning the roaring of the sea and the waves. Very interesting verse as we consider all these hurricanes we're having. And he said in Luke 21:28, listen to what he said. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your what is drawing near? Your redemption is drawing near. So according to our Lord, there is a future redemption that yet awaits those who are already redeemed by the cross. In Romans 8:23, Paul also talks there about the future redemption of our bodies, which is yet to come. And then over in Ephesians 4.30, Paul tells believers that we have been sealed for the day of redemption. A day that is still future to us. We are redeemed already as believers, redeemed from guilt and judgment. But we are not yet redeemed fully And finally, there is a future final redemption, a final buying out that yet awaits us. In the meantime, the redeemed of God are in a waiting mode. We are waiting for the final redemption, yes? Just as Old Testament believers, redeemed out of Egypt, redeemed out of Babylon, awaited what Luke 2.38 called the redemption of Jerusalem. They were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We Christians, we who are already redeemed as the New Testament church, we wait for our final and full redemption. So the final question is, how shall the redeemed in Jesus occupy themselves while waiting for the final redemption? Now here comes the application of this sermon. Listen. After God redeemed Israel out of Egypt at the Exodus, God expressed the fact that the redeemed were now the property of the Redeemer by virtue of the fact that God had redeemed them. And so in places like Deuteronomy 15.15 and Deuteronomy 24.18, Moses says, essentially, God redeemed you out of Egypt, therefore God commands you To obey him. The redeemed now had an obligation because of their redemption to obey the redeemer who bought them out and who now owned them. Well, in the same way, New Testament redeemed believer, you are the property of the redeemer by virtue of him redeeming you. And upon you the obligation rests, I want you to listen carefully, upon you the obligation rests to bring glory to the Redeemer. Listen carefully to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. And here in the context, Paul is warning us concerning sexual immorality. 
Paul says, beginning at verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, flee, get up and run, do a sprint from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now listen to what he says. Or do you not know, believer, that your body, your physical body, is a what? Temple. It's a place where God dwells. A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Now listen to what he says. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That's redemption. Language. Believer, you were bought, ransomed, with the cost of the precious blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So says Paul, the application of your redemption is, glorify God in your body. Use your body. What's your body? It's you. (laughs) Wherever you go, in public or private, use your God-created, God-redeemed body that has been bought with a price always to honor your Redeemer and make His name great and bring Him fame. The blood of Jesus was shed on the cross to redeem you, not so that you could simply say thank you very much and walk away from your Redeemer, but so that you would use your freedom that he purchased for you to redeem the time, Ephesians 5.16 in the King James, to serve God, to obey his commandments and bring him honor. So this week, redeemed believer, and then I'm done, Glorify God in your body at all hours. To paraphrase the old Heidelberg Catechism, so honor God this week so that in all your living you may show that you are thankful to God for the redemption he has given you and so that he may be praised through you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we've seen this morning the extravagant, almost unbelievable lengths that you have gone to to redeem us, to buy us into your family, to adopt us as sons and daughters, to give us the Holy Spirit, to set us free, to give us eternal life. Lord, thank you doesn't seem enough, but we say thank you to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We say thank you for coming and living in the flesh on mission to die on the cross to redeem us as the sacrifice for our sins. May we take this word today into our week and do as Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 6, glorify you in everything we do this week. In Jesus' name, amen.